You can open up your Bibles to the Old Testament book of 1 Kings, which is after 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. 1 Kings chapter 19. In verses 1 through 18, now we're picking up the story of Elijah in a larger context, and I'll go over that, the kind of the backstory in the sermon. But in chapter 19, beginning in verse 1, we're introduced to three people, Ahab, Jezebel, and Elijah. These are our three main characters here. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. And then he was afraid. And he arose, and he ran for his life, and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah. And he left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and he drank and he lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. There he came to a cave and lodged or slept in it, spent the night in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have broken, forsaken your covenant and thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant and thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to go and take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go. Turn on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shephat, of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. 
And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu, Elisha shall put to death. Yet I leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, we pick up, as I mentioned, our story today in the middle of the story, and so we need a brief introduction, and I said I wrote brief on page one, and then I got to page eight and realized it wasn't that brief. I apologize, but um, some explanation would help set the context for this story, and there are three characters, as I said, we need to meet. First is Elijah, good old Elijah, the prophet of God one who never tasted death, but was taken to heaven directly. Elijah lived in the time of the divided kingdom when the children of Israel split themselves into two nations. The ten tribes in the north formed a nation in the north called Israel, and the tribes of Judah and Benjamin formed a much smaller and weaker country south of that that went by the name of Judah. And Judah's main claim to fame was that it controlled Jerusalem and therefore the temple of Solomon. Elijah is a prophet who is prophesying in the northern kingdom. And Elijah was a mighty prophet indeed, perhaps the most powerful prophet besides Moses in the whole of the Old Testament. Next, we need to meet Ahab. Ahab is the king of the northern tribes. Ahab is in many ways a weak and an undisciplined man, you can read about him in 1 Kings chapters 16 through 22. The portrait of Ahab that emerges is of a man who is childish and given to tantrums and sulking. He's a man whose only talent seems to be making dumb decisions and angering the Lord. And Ahab is completely dominated by his wife, a woman named Jezebel, Queen Jezebel. And that's who we need to meet next. And in many ways, she's probably the most important in this story in some ways because she's the main person that's in charge of all the bad stuff that's happening. Jezebel is not a Jew. Her father was the king of Tyre and Sidon, which is north in what is today Lebanon. And his name was Ethbal. He had been, according to Josephus, the Jewish historian, he had been high priest of the goddess Asherah, and he had gained the throne by murdering the last descendant of a king named Hiram, king of Tyre, who had been a close ally both of David and Solomon. Hiram, king of Tyre, had actually gifted enormous sums of cedar lumber uh, in order to build the temple in Jerusalem. And Jezebel was every inch his daughter. She was a priestess of Asherah. She was a sorceress. She was beautiful. She was unarguably brilliant. She had an iron self-discipline and a great sense of purpose. She was a fanatic for the worship and service of her filthy demonic gods. And she was really the power behind the throne, not her husband Ahab. She was cunning, and she was ruthless, 
and she was determined to make Israel worship her gods. And once she was in power, she tore down the altars to the Lord God, and she slaughtered all the prophets of God that she could get her hands on, and she mandated Baal worship. And most of the people seemed to not only have not minded, but even have participated enthusiastically in that. She was like the witch in C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. Well, why was this so important? Why did the people... Why were they tempted to this? You see, Baal is a fertility god, and he's the bringer of the rains, they thought. And in an arid and desert climate, the whole food supply depends on the rains. Rains make the cattle, the grass grow so that the sheep and the goats and the cattle have something to eat. Rain makes the wheat and the barley and the grapes and the vegetables grow so you can have bread and wine. Baal also was supposed to assure that your wife had lots of kids and that your flocks and herds multiplied greatly. And so the worshipers of Baal, believing that the fertility of flock and herd and the timely, gentle, abundant rains depended on Baal having sex with his goddess wife, Asherah, uh, they, and so in early spring and at other key times in the agricultural calendar, the men would go up to the temple of Baal and they would have sex with the priestesses of Asherah who were also prostitutes. And they figured that Baal was watching, and if they could get Baal excited, then he and Asherah would hook up, and everyone would have a good time, and there would be abundance in the land. And everyone would feast and go back home. And that's one of the reasons Baal worship was so popular and so hard to eradicate, because it was, frankly, lots of fun. And, of course, if Baal was angry with you or refused to send the rains, you might have to do something more drastic to get his attention, like offer your children as a live burnt offering to Baal. But everyone really hoped that it didn't come to that, and so it was best to worship Baal regularly, enthusiastically, and precisely as commanded by the priests and priestesses of Baal. Well, things got so out of hand that it looks as if Elijah was the only faithful worshiper of God left in the land. And so Elisha says, I want to deal with this, Lord. I want to deal with this with you. And he prays and he asks God to withhold the rains for years. And God agrees to answer Elijah's prayer. And so Elijah goes to the king, to King Ahab, and he tells him what is about to happen. He says, by, there will be no dew nor rain these next years except by my word. And that's exactly what happens. Now, one drought year in a subsistence agricultural economy will produce hunger. Two drought years is very serious. Three drought years is the beginning of famine, and it's a desperate situation. And even Ahab's pantry is affected. And so Jezebel and Ahab and, and the people are, are all mashing the make bail happy buttons that they can find. They're, they're doing it, everything they can and nothing is helping. The rains won't come and Baal suddenly begins to look like he is not very powerful. And the Lord God might have something to say. Now, you got to understand that these people were trying to hedge their bets. They would say, look, our God is El Shaddai, God most high, God of the mountains. He's a mountain God. You know, he's good up there. But, but you know, he's not so good on the plains where the stuff grows. You know, he's, he's kind of stuck up there, and his influence is limited. So, so we need to, to worship the God of the plains to make sure that the stuff that happens on the plains happens on the plains in good order, and that's Baal and that's Asherah. 
because they had a faulty view of God. They thought he's not in control. He's good where he's at, but he's not good at anything else. Going to God for the, the reins and the flocks is like going to a foot doctor for a heart problem, they thought. So we need to go to the, to the heart doctor. And then Elijah comes along and he says, no rain by my God's power. For three years, there's no rain, and the people are desperate. And then God tells Elijah, all right, it's time. Three years later, and so Elijah seeks out Ahab, and he tells him, hey, we're going to have a contest. You gather all the people together at Mount Carmel. We're going to have a showdown. Bring the prophets of Baal with you. And we're going to have this contest. Two sacrifices will be prepared. One for Baal and one for the Lord. And the God who answers by fire and consumes the sacrifice is the real God, okay? And the people like the idea. Baal doesn't seem to be working out as good as they thought. They're, genu they're genuinely confused about who the real God is. And a little bit of lightning from the sky ought to be easy enough for Baal the storm God to produce. And so they do that. They gather on Mount Carmel and, and the 450 prophets of Baal prepare their sacrifice of a bull and they begin their entreaty to their non-existent God. And they begin by dancing and crying out. It starts at six in the morning. Nothing happens. So they make more noise and they dance harder. And the Bible says, and nothing happened. Nobody heard. Nobody answered. So they begin to cut themselves with swords and spears, hoping that the sight of their blood flowing would excite Baal. And still nothing happens. And this goes on from dawn until noon. And after the clock strikes 12, Elijah starts mocking them. Now, I love the Hebrew Bible because it is fairly crude when you actually read it in the original Hebrew. And they, they didn't have any problem with what we would call an earthy sense of humor. The, stu the kind of stuff that my wife regularly chastises me for. So I say, it's biblical, honey. He says, cry louder. He's a God, says Elijah. Maybe he's lost in thoughts. Maybe, maybe he's sitting on the john. It literally says that in the Hebrew. Maybe, maybe, he's, maybe he's defecating. Maybe, you know, you know when dad disappears into the, into the bathroom with the newspaper and you know you ain't going to see him again for an hour and a half because that's the only place to get any peace and quiet and read the newspaper? Maybe that's what Baal's doing. Cry louder. Maybe he's taking a nap. You know, he's sleepy. Cry louder and wake him up. The Bible says nobody hears. Nobody answers. And this goes on for almost the whole day. And then at the time to prepare the evening sacrifice, Elijah orders an old broken down altar of the Lord to be repaired. And then he says, dig a trench around it. And then they pour water over the sacrifice three times. till even the trench is filled with water. And then Elijah prays a simple prayer. And he asks God to show the people who the true God is, because they're genuinely confused. They don't know. And a great bolt of lightning falls from a clear blue sky. And not only is the sacrifice consumed, but even the stones of the altar are vaporized, and the water is licked up from the trench 
around the altar. And the people cry out, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah says to the people, well, then grab the prophets of Baal and bring them down to the creek bed. And he has them slaughtered. And now the people know their terrible error. Now they proclaim that the Lord is the true God. And pretty soon the rains will come. And they do. Both the king and Elijah leave that scene and they travel quickly and separately to a town 12 miles southeast of there called Jezreel, which is just a little bit south of Nazareth today. It's a small city. Ahab had a winter palace there, and Jezebel is there waiting. She's waiting for the good news. She is confident that her gods are going to prevail. She's confident in her priests. She's confident in her own power over the people. And look, it's getting cloudy. The rains are even returning. And she must have said to herself, oh, bless Baal and bless Asherah. And Elijah was surely dead at this time. The gods must have sent the rains to celebrate. And then Elijah shows up at the city gate. He'd actually ran and outran Ahab in his chariot. He shows up at the city gate. And then a muddy, wet, and exhausted Ahab shows up, trembling and shaking. And he tells his wife what happened because he's afraid of her wrath. And trembling, Ahab tells his witch wife all that Elijah had done. And if you notice in the first few verses of chapter 19, he doesn't say all that the Lord God did through Elijah. No, he wouldn't want to upset the missus with the idea that her gods were inferior to the Lord God. So he pins it on Elijah. This is what Elijah did. Now Jezebel is in a tricky situation at exactly this point. She's mad. She's not dumb. Her gods now look weak in the eyes of the people. They had all witnessed the events at Mount Carmel, and they seized her prophets at Elijah's command, and they see plainly that the rains have come because of the Lord God. And they confessed out loud as one that the Lord is the true God. If she kills Elijah, the people will turn on her. They might turn on her anyway, but they will certainly turn on her if she kills Elijah. So she needs to deprive the revolution of its leader. And he's right here in Jezreel at the city gate. And so she sends a messenger. Notice that she sends a messenger, not a soldier, not an assassin, which she could have done. She sends a messenger. And this is where our story starts today, really. And the message that Jezebel sends is this. You are going to be dead tomorrow by this time. Now, for some reason, this news takes the heart out of Elijah, just as Jezebel hoped that it would. We don't really know why. Maybe he believed that the king was supposed to come in and arrest or kill his wife. Maybe he thought that the people would march on the palace and kill her. Maybe he thought that she would repent or flee. We aren't told what Elijah had in his mind. But he does, at this news, just what she calculated he might do. He runs. He flees. And he flees out of the nation of Israel and into the southern kingdom of Judah. And then he flees all the way to the southernmost town 
in the southern kingdom of Judah, a place called Beersheba. And then he leaves his servant there. And he must have realized that, hey, I'm actually in more danger here than I was back in Israel. Uh, if I was in Israel, I would be visible to the people in the north because I was among them, but, but, and Jezebel would hesitate to strike. But down here, I'm out of sight, I'm out of mind, I'm alone. It would be very easy for an assassin to find me and kill me, and I can guarantee that she's planning just exactly that. So I'm going to get out of here. And he wanders further south into the desert of the Negev. He finds a broom tree. He sits down under it. He asks the Lord to take his life. I've been through enough, Lord. Take away my life. I, I'm no better than my fathers. I just want to die. And he falls asleep under the shelter of that broom tree. He is physically, emotionally, and spiritually exhausted. He has come right to the edge of victory, and he failed. And he lacks the strength to go on. He knows he has screwed up. He just wants to die. Have you ever been there? Have you ever cried out to the heavens, Lord, it would be a great favor to me if you would just strike me dead right here, right now. Just end my life. I'm tired, Lord. I don't want to live anymore, Lord. Take me home. Life is too painful. The wounds are too deep, and I'll never recover from them. I'll never be whole again. My failure is too big. I'll never live it down. I'll never be able to face people again. I'm too ashamed. Maybe you sinned in a devastating way that has wrecked your life, and the consequences are devastating. Maybe you've knelt down or collapsed on the kitchen floor or the garage or bowed your head at your desk at work or maybe in the front seat of your car sitting in the driveway and you just can't bring yourself to go into the house and you just wept. You said, Lord, take my life. I don't want to live anymore. I need to tell you that the Lord is in that. The Lord has purpose for that. That the Lord is using that. I'm not saying it's nice. I'm not saying it's comfortable. I'm saying it's not the end. Sometimes God's address is www.attheendofyourrope.com. And that's where Elijah was. And God knew that. Now look at how our Heavenly Father teaches him. Look at what our Heavenly Father does. The first thing God does is just let him sleep, right? Elijah slept under the broom tree there, and it was a, a deep and a restorative sleep. And then God sends an angel to wake him up with a breakfast. And then God says, now go back to sleep. And so he does. And then he wakes Elijah Again, and notice that how the angel wakes him up. The angel's not like, get up, boy. The angel just touches him. Just touches him. Elijah, wake up. Make you some breakfast. And then he wakes up again, and he has another drink of water, and another magic muffin. And then he 
heads off on a journey. Now the rest probably took a total of at least a couple of days. One of the contrib greatest contributing factors to coming to a place of despair, frankly, is fatigue. You lose perspective, you lose hope, you lose resiliency when you are physically and emotionally exhausted. And one of the things that the Lord has been teaching me these last few years is just how much sleep is necessary. And emotional exhaustion will always lead to physical exhaustion because you can't calm your mind down and so your body is always on alert and your body was not designed to be always on alert. It tears it up, actually. And when we are fragile, when we are exhausted, when we are full of despair, the Lord doesn't smack us and tell us to shape up. The Lord says, peace. Be still. Sleep. We can talk when you're rested. Get some sleep. The second thing that the Lord gives him is the gift of solitude. Now, the place where Elijah ended up in this story is probably about 200 miles south of Beersheba. And we've already seen in the story that Elijah ran 12 miles from Mount Carmel to Jezreel and beat King Ahab's chariot in doing so. So Elijah was not some guy with a cane or a walker doddering through the desert. Uh, he was quite vigorous, and he could have easily covered that 200 miles in 10 days. 10 days. He could do it if it was a direct journey, and it wouldn't even be a strenuous journey in 10 days. The Arab runners, the Arab messengers uh, were widely known in the ancient world to be able to run 100 miles in two days. So they ran 50 miles a day through the deserts. So Elijah certainly could have done 200 miles in 10 days. But God gave him 40. 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness, alone, with just him and God. Alone with his thoughts. Away from the demands of other people. Away from the concerns about Jezebel. Away from the guilt that he felt for succumbing to fear. All of those things were left behind in that wonderful 40-day period. And it seems like even God was silent during that 40-day period. And when we are exhausted, when we are wrung out, when we are recovering from failure, when we are processing bad news, very often solitude is what we need most. Silence and solitude, and not just a little bit of it. There, there's something about silence and solitude that heals our souls, or at least puts it in a place where it can be easily healed. And many spiritual writers number silence and solitude as among the most important of the spiritual disciplines. Listen to what um, Dallas Willard says. Solitude frees us, actually. This, above all, explains its primacy and priority among the disciplines. The normal course of day-to-day -day human interactions locks us into a patterns of feeling, thought, and action that are geared to a world set against God. Nothing but solitude can allow the development of a freedom from the ingrained behaviors that hinder our integration into God's order. It takes 20 times more the amount of amphetamine to kill individual mice than it takes to kill them in groups. Think about that for a minute. 20 times more to kill a solitary mouse than a, a mouse that's in a group of mice. 
Experimenters also found that a mouse given no amphetamine at all will be dead within 10 minutes if placed in the midst of a group on the drug. In groups, they go off like popcorn or firecrackers. Western men and women, especially, talk a great deal about being individuals, but our conformity to social pattern is hardly less remarkable than that of the mice, and just as deadly. In solitude, we find the psychic distance, the perspective from which we can see in the light of eternity the created things that trap, worry, and oppress us. It's interesting, I talked to a man recently who had just gone through a divorce, and uh, he said to me, he went away to fish camp for three days. And he said, that was the best three days I've had in 30 years. All I did was read, play with my fire, eat a little bit, fish a little bit, sleep a lot. And nobody was there, and there was no phone. It was just me. Solitude will do that for him. So God tenderly gives Elijah a 40-day walk in the desert with no issues to deal with, not even food or water. He supernaturally sustained him with the muffin and the drink of water. And God arranged for that uh, in such a way that his, supernatural, his needs were met supernaturally by an angel. And finally, Elijah arrives at Mount Horeb. Now, Mount Horeb is just another name for Mount Sinai, where God gave the law to Moses. And there's something here in the Hebrew that the English doesn't usually translate very well. In most versions, at least, in verse 9, it says he came to a cave and lodged in it. But in the Hebrew, it actually says he came to the cave and spent the night. The cave. Now, what is the cave at Mount Sinai? Well, you may remember in Exodus 33 when Moses goes back up Mount Sinai to talk with the Lord after the golden calf incident and he had broken the tablets of stone and he asked to see the Lord's glory. And the Lord said, that's not possible. It would kill you. But I will pass by you and I will show you my goodness and you will see my back, as it were, after I have passed. And so God says Exodus 33, hides Moses in the cleft of the rock and he covers his eyes. He's in a cave. And then God passes by him. And scholars think Elijah's cave and Moses' cleft in the rock are one and the same. God appeared to both men there. But first, God gives him one more good night's sleep, doesn't he? And only when he is spiritually, emotionally, and physically rested is it time to talk? And in verse 8, it says, And behold, the word of the Lord came to Elijah, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? Interesting question, isn't it? What are you doing here, Elijah? He doesn't say, You idiot, I handed you a nearly complete victory, and you couldn't even close the deal, though that was true. He didn't say, you shouldn't be afraid of Jezebel, you should be afraid of me. Though that's true, and Jesus said something very much like that. He doesn't even say, hey Elijah, you failed me. I, I know it's a hard thing to deal with that woman, but I've always cared for you. Why would you doubt me now? He doesn't say that, no. He just says, 
What are you doing here, Elijah? Now, in asking that question, there is something of a rebuke. Elijah is not where Elijah is supposed to be. But God is asking. He's not accusing. God lets Elijah talk and listen to the cataract of grief that pours out of Elijah's mouth. He says, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've thrown down your altars. They've killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I, only am left. And now they seek my life to take it away. Terrible. Have you ever felt that? God, everything you said you wanted me to do, I did, and you failed me. Everything I was supposed to do, I did, and where are you? You didn't show up on time. And God doesn't explain. God doesn't defend himself. He just says, go outside and stand there for a minute. And then the text says, the Lord passed by. At first, there was a, a great, terrifying wind that tore at the mountains and that broke the rocks. He says, the Lord wasn't in the wind. Then there was this earthquake. And the very mountains shook with the presence of God, but the Lord wasn't in the earthquake. And then there was this great torching blast of flame, but the Lord wasn't in the fire. And what's all that about? Well, in Moses' day, the Lord was in the great wind that parted the Red Sea. In Moses' day, there were earthquakes. The mountain of Mount Sinai shook with the blast of the trumpets as the Lord descended on the mountain to give the law, and the people were terrified. They, didn't, they, they weren't even allowed to touch the mountain lest they die. Even a sheep or a goat that touched the mountain had to be stoned to death. And it was earthquakes that happened to open the earth and swallow up those who rebelled against Moses. And then there was the pillar of cloud that led the children of Israel in the wilderness by day and a pillar of fire by night. Now in Exodus, the Lord was in those. But it says here, he's not in these. What does that mean? Well, there's a still, small voice that comes to him like a whisper. And it says the Lord is in the whisper. You know, the great wind and earthquake and fire were also used as symbols of God's judgment, and especially of God's judgment in dramatic and catastrophic ways. And Elijah, honestly, by personality and by gifting, was kind of a wind, earthquake, and blowtorch kind of guy. And that's what he wanted. That was his paradigm for everything. God, break it up, destroy it, smash it. And God does that sometimes. But he did not seem to understand that the God of judgment is also a God of mercy and grace and long-suffering and forgiveness. And his mercy and patience have a dual purpose. First, they make room for them that will repent to repent. And second, they make time for it to be clear to everyone, not least the wicked themselves, that they had plenty of time and multiple opportunities to turn from their evil ways, but the wicked would have none of it. And so when judgment comes, nobody will be able to say God was unfair. 
As a matter of fact, it would be another 150 years before God's judgment of mighty wind and earthquake and fire finally did happen to the northern kingdom in the form of the conquest by the king of Assyria. But before that, Israel would get worse, but she would also grow more powerful and more wealthy. But Elijah was learning to let God be God be God. He knows everything. He has a time for everything. He's working all things to the end, to the purpose that he has appointed. He's got more ways of doing things than you can imagine. So just let God be God. But he was also learning another lesson. You see, Elijah stands in the presence of the Lord and his face is shrouded with his cloak. He did that because he knew what God had said to Moses was true, that no one can look upon the Lord and live. This is the place before Almighty God where no man can lie. And God asks him again, what are you doing here, Elijah? And his answer is the same. I have been faithful and true to you. I have done what you said. And that was true. The people have forsaken you. It wasn't just Jezebel. She just paved the way. The people themselves, their hearts love Baal more than they love you. And that was true. They've done wrong by you. They've forsaken your covenant. They've cooperated enthusiastically with Jezebel. They've broken down your altars. And they killed my friends, the prophets, also. And I am all alone, God. And as far as Elijah knew, that was true. And God, now they're trying to kill me too. And I'm afraid, and I'm confused, and I'm angry. And all of it's true. The source of all of his anguish is this. I've done what you've said. Other people have not. And they've hurt me severely in their rebellion against you, pursuing their own lusts and their own purposes. And God, you haven't done anything about it. You allow your ways to be trampled underfoot without lifting a finger. And you've thrown me under the bus in the process. Have you ever been there? Have you ever looked at your marriage as it was dissolving under your feet? Have you ever done what you're supposed to do in your business and your business partner knifes you in the back? Or your employer, you're a faithful employee. You come in and you work extra time and you do everything you're supposed to do. And then at the first instance when you get expensive and start making some money or you have some health problems or you're getting older, they throw you out. You're too expensive. We can replace you for two-thirds of the price, they say. Has your church ever done that to you? sinfully hurt you? Has your heart cracked under the weight of God? It is not fair. It is not right. You know, there's a lot of people that go through painful things, and on the other side of it, they say, I think I'm an atheist now because if God exists, that shouldn't have happened. They're not really atheists. They're angry theists because they're angry at a God who they think failed him, and the way that they're taking it out on him is to pretend like he doesn't exist and be really mad when anybody brings it up. A real atheist doesn't care. A real atheist doesn't care if you tell him he's going to hell. He doesn't believe in anything but this life. It's the angry theist that goes, oh yeah, that's hate speech. It's because you know it's true. 
And God says, in essence, Oh, Elijah, I know you're at the end of your rope. I know that your strength has failed. I know you're out of patience. I know you're out of resources, but I am not. And the time for me to move is now at hand. And here's what's going to happen, Elijah. You will personally anoint and commission the people who I will use to deal directly with the problems you are concerned about. And I will give you also a man named Elisha as a companion and as a successor. You're not alone. You never were. Now you've got another human companion. And Elijah, you also have 7,000 in Israel who I've reserved, who have been faithful to me, just like you. They were always there. It's just that you didn't know about them. Loved ones, do not judge the Lord by your feeble sense. Do not judge His purposes and His actions by what you can see. Not because what you can see is wrong, necessarily. What you can see is just incomplete. You can't see everything that he's got going on. And then God says to Elijah, go back to work, boy. I'm always with you. Now, I've gone longer than I intended today. So I'm going to bring things to a slightly awkward close by saying this. I'm going to reiterate that often God's address is www.attheendofyourrope.com. And because of that, at the end of your rope is a very blessed place to be. It's a blessed place to be broken. And to just pour yourself out before the Lord. And to be broken before the Lord. And to know that our God, and specifically our God in Jesus Christ, is the one who will not break the bruised reed. You ever taken your McDonald's straw and bent it hard enough and it never right again, it never has that rigidity and usually it leaks? A reed is like that too. And if you bend it, it'll never stand up on its own again. And Jesus says, I'm the one who would come along and look at that little reed that nobody values and nobody thinks is important and I'll bind it up so that it can live and it can be whole. Our Jesus is the one who says, will not snuff the smoldering wick. You blow out a candle and there's that little ember that keeps burning and burning and burning and smoking and carrying on and all of us would just go, Psst. not Jesus, who looks at that and says, let me fan that into flame again. That's how your God is with you. Second, come to him. Don't avoid him. A lot of people get mad at him and avoid him. Go ahead and get mad at him and then come to him. Bring him your complaints. Bring him your fatigue. Bring him your tired, unquiet soul. And just lay it before him as it is. You're not going to surprise him. You go back to the prophet Jeremiah in the Old Testament and God set him up for a really crummy job. And right in the middle of it, when things got hard, God says to, Jeremiah says to God, Lord, you deceived me, and I was deceived. I did everything you said to do, and it's brought me not blessing, but pain. So God can take it, right? 
If he didn't squish Jeremiah, he's not going to squish you. So bring him your, your tired and your unquiet soul and just speak to him about the truth as it is in you. Thirdly, listen to his promises to you. Promises made in his word and sealed in Christ's blood. Though it takes a while for them to be worked out in your life, do not doubt. You can grow weary. You can complain to the Lord. The Psalms are a wonderful blueprint for complaining. But don't doubt. Good things will come. His promises will be fulfilled. And then lastly, do the best you can. And if you can't, ask Him to help you. Rest in Him. Rest in Him. He is your sufficiency. He is the only sufficiency. And He will never fail. Amen.